Good morning. He is risen. He is risen. This morning we are gathered together uh, online and in person to lift high the name of Jesus and to proclaim to the world that he is risen. He is risen indeed. We want to worship him and praise him for what he has done because the resurrection changed everything. The resurrection has changed everything. It brought us from hopelessness to hope, from despair to elation, from fighting for our survival to the promise of eternal life. It was the morning that changed everything. And everything had happened so fast up until this point. They took him in the middle of the night. They bound him and they beat him. They questioned him in this sham of a trial and mockery of a trial. And then they handed him over to Pilate to be sentenced to death. The disciples were in denial until it was too late, but he willingly and, and without raising a voice allowed it to happen. He did not defend himself when they accused him. He even stopped Peter from trying to fight off the guards. This was the plan. This was to fulfill what was written. This was the price that had to be paid. This was the provision and the propitiation propitiation of God for his children. Because in the garden, humanity broke covenant with God. Adam was led to sin against God by the serpent. And we see the original sin in the garden was the result of not trusting in God and trusting in God's word that they would die if they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent lied and told them, you shall not surely die if you eat of this fruit. No, you will be like God knowing good and evil. So mistrust of God's word broke relationship with God. And also in their attempt to elevate themselves to be like God, they sinned against God. And in doing so, God pronounced judgment against them and the curse entered the world. So we became slaves of of working and toil and uh, labor and pain. Fear of death came and survival came only through the sweat of our brow and through the pain and childbirth. And that ancient serpent, the devil, took the power over death. But God in that moment clothed Adam and Eve, who now saw their nakedness, and established the plan for our restored relationship with himself. That is the true tragedy of sin that it separates us from relationship with God. And now God is drawing us and wooing us back to himself one by one. And nearly 2,000 years ago, he sent his son to break open the floodgates of salvation. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, speaking of the work of Jesus and what he accomplished, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, says, Since therefore the children the children of God, share in flesh and blood, so physical flesh and blood bodies. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. So he took on flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So God is perfectly just and righteous and and will not bend or break the law. So the devil in his jealousy used this against humanity. God's beloved, to put enmity between us and God, to give himself legal rights over the power of death, for in his deception of Adam and Eve, it led to their death. 
1 John 5, 19, uh, we read John, John writes, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the death of Jesus broke Satan's grip on us. It utterly destroyed him for the light had come and the darkness had not overcome it. So Satan's power over the, over the world is allowed for only a time, for only a little while longer until Jesus comes again to rightfully claim for himself what is his and to take all those he's been gathering to himself and to make all things new. He is waiting for the Father's timing and the full harvest to be brought into the barn. So we are waiting with expectant hope for the Lord's return. So, verse 14, the payment due sin is death. And so it was through death that Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15 of Hebrews chapter two, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he came to deliver us from death and set us free so we are no longer bound and suffocated by death. And in this life, we know that tomorrow is not guaranteed us. Our days are numbered, so we either try to distract ourselves from the reality of death, or we kind of just tell ourselves it's a long ways off, I don't want to think about it. Or in Christ, we can say, as Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. That is true freedom from lifelong slavery of the fear of death. That's radical. But that is the new and eternal life we have in Christ, who said, because I live, you also will live. And he said, I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. And in that place, there are many rooms. There is lots of rooms, he told his disciples. If it were not so, so I would not have told you, he said. That's our great hope. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter two continues, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And we by faith are Abraham's spiritual offspring. For Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness from God. So too, through our faith in Christ Jesus, we are credited his righteousness. For when Abraham was told by God that he would be the father of many nations, and through him the whole earth would be blessed. And God told Abraham to take his son Isaac to a mountain in the region of Moriah to sacrifice him there. It was a three-day journey there. Three days of agonizing, three days of grief, three days of grim determination as Isaac bore the wood that he did not know would eventually be his own altar to be sacrificed on the mount. But Abraham trusted God. He did not know how or why, but he knew and believed God would provide and that he indeed could raise Isaac from the dead. So he obeyed as he drew the knife to strike Isaac on the mountain, and then God sent an angel to stop him before he did. For it was not Abraham's son who would be the sacrifice. It would be God's son. So in that moment, God provided a ram for Abraham in place of his son, and the redemption plan was set in motion. For Isaac bore two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, whose name became Israel, bore 12 sons. And the 12 tribes of Israel were formed. And as prophesied through the tribe of Judah, from the line of David came the Messiah, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, as the true and only Son of God. 
God incarnate, entered into his creation as a babe. Verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 2 continues this thought. Therefore, therefore, because Jesus came to help not the angels, but the offspring of Abraham, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he became 100% human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, meaning to atone for the sins of the people, to make payment for, to fully cover, cover the sins of the people. And in doing so, he is our great priestly king who has served as mediator between us and God the Father, restoring us to himself. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. John writes in John 1 of Jesus taking on flesh that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation through the virgin birth where the word became the son of man. Flesh and bones, walking, sleeping, eating, bleeding. He felt everything we feel, but he never sinned, not once. He was tempted with every single temptation we are tempted with, but not once did he sin. As Hebrew says, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In his life on earth, he walked against the, the currents of culture and what was fashionable, refusing to be cowed into compromising, refusing to take the easy way out for he is the word. The word whose words carried the weight of all matter, all knowledge, all existence behind them. The word whose existence is declared by his creation. The stars proclaim, the, the sky shouts his handiwork to the ends of the earth. He came humbly, he came to serve, he came to liberate, he came to redeem. He came as the king who cloaked his majesty to die a death that we deserved. He was so badly beaten that day and his back whipped to shreds that a Roman guard grabbed a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross up to Golgotha. As they nailed him to the cross, he prayed to the Father to forgive the Romans doing so, for they knew not what they were doing. And then they put a sign over the cross that read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was a cruel mockery that were in fact the truest words spoken of him that day. And as he hung on the cross, only John and the women were there. Everyone else was too scared to follow. Peter tried and almost got caught. He was, he was almost recognized by somebody, so he fled. And time seemed to stand still while he hung on the cross. The earth shook violently. The sky darkened. The very earth groaned as its author struggled to breathe. When he breathed his last, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The temple curtain was three and a half inches thick that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Uh, it, was, it was split from top to bottom as from the hand of God, demonstrating that access to God had been opened. That no longer was it only accessed once a year, only by the high priest, but now it was torn open as Jesus drank fully of the cup, bearing God's wrath, bearing the cost of our sin, the very ransom for our souls. And at his final breath, the earth shook violently and rocks were split open, including the veil separating the presence of God. It now stood open as the true sacrifice, Christ Jesus, in place of Isaac, in place of me, in place of you, 
fully fulfilled the words of the law and the prophets. And now, opening up to Matthew chapter 27, we read this account beginning in verse 54. After Jesus breathed his last, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So this was a pretty bold move by Joseph. Doing this meant going against the religious elites who just successfully secured the execution of Jesus. But, but this man's love of Jesus was worth far more than his reputation. So he gave him his very own grave cut from the stone. Now the story gets even more interesting. Matthew records for us uh, in verse 62 that the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So they're now realizing that Jesus, when he was still alive, in fact said, after three days I will rise. And they thought probably nothing of it at the time. But now that they successfully killed him, the words of Jesus were burning in their minds. How did he know they would kill him? Why would he say that? He raised Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus was dead for four days and a great crowd witnessed this happening. Is it beyond imagining that he could raise himself from the dead? No, 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 no way. But his disciples, his disciples might want to trick people into believing that he was raised from the dead. Aha. And they thought this because that's exactly what they would do if they were in this situation. They would legitimize themselves through deception if necessary. That is how they thought. So they told Pilate about this, verse 64. Therefore, they said, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. What was the first fraud? The fraud of him actually healing people, of raising Lazarus from the dead, of preaching and teaching in a way that the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes could not argue with him and were humiliated before him and seemed to be the true frauds of the hour. So, so, so that was the first fraud they spoke of. But Pilate, at this point, you know, you know, being so done with these Pharisees, these brood of vipers, as Jesus rightly called them, we read in verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they, these paranoid Pharisees, went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
And then Matthew continues in chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, so Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. So this angel comes down like lightning and strikes this stone, you know, looking like lightning, rolling it back, and he sat on it wearing perfectly white garments. Verse four, and for fear of him, the guards, the guards that were posted there trembled and became like dead men. Right? These tough guards, you know, set there by the Pharisees to prevent any funny business by the disciples were stunned. They, were, they, they trembled, they were unable to speak, becoming like dead men. Verse five, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. And I I love how matter of fact this angel is. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. As he said he would. Obviously, he's risen. He said he would multiple times to you. So many times, in fact, that the Pharisees caught wind of it. And they believed it enough to actually take action to somehow prevent it or prevent the disciples from pretending it happened. But the disciples are nowhere to be seen. They're terrified and hiding out for fear that they would be next. Their master was just crucified and all the power and the momentum were with the Pharisees. To them, it seemed over. And so they grieved the loss of Jesus and and they made the mistake of not taking Jesus at his word. The Pharisees did. The disciples did not. Then the angel goes on and says, come, see the place where he lay. So the angel opened the tomb that had been sealed, not so that Jesus could walk out, but so that the women could go in. And there they could see the linens that his body was wrapped in, but he was gone. For in his resurrected body, he didn't need to use doors. Yet also in his resurrected body, he was fully physical and could be touched as we saw happen with doubting Thomas who insisted he would not believe unless he saw and he touched Jesus. And so Jesus obliged, he showed up. He said, Thomas, touch here, touch here, touch my side. Look, believe, don't disbelieve. He said, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So Jesus can disappear and appear at will as angels could. And then finally we know he ascended into heaven, but he had a human physical body demonstrated, demonstrating to us that in our new resurrected bodies, we will be able to do this as well. That's that's a pretty cool thought. Uh, The angel goes on and says, verse seven, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the the tomb uh, with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them on the way and said, greetings. (laughs) This is the best. Jesus greeting them on the road. I, I imagine this will be a little bit like how he greets us when, when we either die or he comes again. And I could just picture the smile on his face when they saw him and they came towards him. He's pretty sneaky here. And then catching them, not on the way to the tomb, but on their way to tell the others. And I love that. I love that these women were the first to bear witness to seeing the risen Lord. Verse 9 continues. And they came up 
and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And that's our posture this morning because the resurrection changed everything. As Paul says in Romans, it declared powerfully that he is the son of God. And seeing him resurrected, they fell at his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus doesn't stop them from worshiping him. As we've seen angels do in scripture before. They say, don't worship me, you worship God. Jesus doesn't stop them from worshiping him. Because it's right and proper for us to worship Jesus, the risen Lord. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And he sends the women to go and tell who? His brothers. His brothers. That's cool. For so many reasons. He shares in our flesh and blood now. He calls them brothers. Not just disciples, subordinates, followers, not even friends. He calls them brothers. Why? Again, because the resurrection changed everything. It changed everything. And another amazing thing, Jesus chose the first people to bear witness of him as the, as the risen Lord as women. He chose the women to be the first to see him, to bear witness to him, his, his dearly beloved sisters. And considering women weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a court of law at that time, Jesus is beginning by flipping that on its head. From the very beginning of the church, women had a prominent role. And throughout the church uh, history, they have been the backbone and some of the very best witnesses of Jesus. And it begins with these women who were there, who were there. When the men were at home, they were scared, they were stuck, they didn't know what to do, but the women were there. They went. And in places around the world where, where persecution is the worst, the very worst, places like Iran, women we see are the very bravest, the very boldest in declaring Jesus to their networks, to their oikosis, to those people God's put in their lives. We see the church growing there because of the efforts of the women ministering and witnessing about Jesus. It's an amazing thing. Real quick, let's finish the story in Matthew chapter 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble, guards. Don't worry. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Wow. So these chief priests, these Pharisees, after hearing this account from the guards of an angel coming down like, like lightning, opening the tomb, and the, the tomb was empty, the Pharisees heard this and they paid them to cover it up and to tell a false story. Wow. Why? Why would they do this? Did they not see the massive implications of this? Well, they did. They did. And that is why they paid to cover it up. The chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked Jesus on the cross. All those who could not win an argument with Jesus 
who, who stopped asking him questions because it was hurting their reputation. The cowards hurled insults at Jesus while he was hanging from the cross, saying they'd believe him if he'd come down from the cross. They'd believe him. They'd worship him. And here we see that it's not true. That is not true. For when he rose from the dead, they would not accept Jesus. Why? Because he challenged their authority. He was not a God of their own making who would obey them, who would cater to them, who would honor them. The people flocked to Jesus. They flocked to him. And the scribes and Pharisees were left trying to defend their false teachings in the face of the one who knew scriptures better than anyone and repeatedly contradicted them and pointed out their hypocrisy, that theirs was a religion of outward pretense, but God was not impressed. But of course, that was not what they were concerned with, with impressing God. They were concerned with impressing people and their robes and, and their long tassels and their long prayers were an effort to pull that off. So the Pharisees said, come down from the cross and we will believe you. Obviously that wasn't true. He rose from the dead and they paid money to cover it up. And the story they paid for was spread. But then weeks later, weeks later, when the disciples were preaching the resurrected Jesus in Jerusalem and, and making the religious leaders furious at the time, you know, the religious leaders were powerless to stop them. They were powerless to disprove the resurrection. So instead they beat them and tried to shut them up, even killing Stephen, the first martyr. There's no doubt that if Jesus uh, had not uh, had a bodily resurrection, that the religious leaders and the political leaders of the day would have quickly and effectively smashed the rising sect of Christianity by locating the corpse and wheeling it through the streets of Jerusalem, providing undeniable evidence that the resurrection was a hoax. It would have destroyed Christianity before it even started, but that never happened, which further bolsters the case for the resurrection. The enemies of Jesus had every reason to produce his body and every resource to obtain it and protect it. And it was completely unreasonable to assume or believe that the followers of Jesus could or would have stolen his body. In regards to the resurrection, George Hansen writes in his book, uh, his book, The Resurrection and the Life, saying, the difficulties of belief may be great. The absurdities of unbelief are greater. Yes, the resurrection is dramatic, but it's corroborated. It's evidenced by the empty tomb, and no one has been able to disprove it, only to deny it. Even though they had every resource and desire to disprove it, because if they could, Christianity is over in a second. But they were unable to. In fact, all the evidence pointed the other way, towards the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Again, they worshiped him because the resurrection changed everything. But some doubted. We already talked about doubting Thomas. Uh, Matthew ends with verses 18 through 20 with the Great Commission because again, the resurrection changed everything. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why? Because the resurrection changed everything. And the great commission here, we see three distinct things that the resurrection has changed. Number one, it made Jesus over everything. Jesus says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the resurrection, Jesus received all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. It was given to him. The schemes of the devil were utterly thwarted in the resurrection. For in Christ's death, he fulfilled the law, and in his resurrection, he was given all authority. So the accuser was silenced before the throne of God. So no longer are we bound by sin and death, for he is the first of the resurrection of the dead. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 through 18, we read John's vision of Jesus saying, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus possesses the keys of death and Hades, meaning that he has control and authority over death. He has seized them from the enemy. In John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18, Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So when Jesus died, we read that he gave up his spirit. So Jesus, who has authority over death, has the authority to give up his spirit and also to rise from the dead. Moreover, uh, and important for us this morning, is that he now has the authority to raise us from the dead in order that we might be with him for all eternity. You see, the resurrection brought life and hope into a decaying and corrupted world. For Jesus now has all authority. And because of that, number two, second thing we see here in the Great Commission is that the resurrection made a local event a global event. And the command was to go and make disciples of whom? Of all nations, of all nations. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, worldwide, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. So it was always meant to be a global event, and the resurrection made it so. And finally, three, it broke wide open. The resurrection broke wide open access to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He commands us to baptize in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're baptized, demonstrating our sharing in his death, his burial, and in his resurrection. And through that, our relationship to the triune God has been restored so that we have continual access to God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised to be with us always to the very end of the age. The resurrection made, wa made a way for eternal relationship with the triune God.
You see, man in his ignorance believed he could kill God so we could be our own gods. But God in his love allowed us to so that he can be shown more glorious than our small minds and our small mindedness could possibly comprehend. It is not his might that made right. It was his all surpassing glory that made us righteous. The shame he bore was our shame. The guilt he accepted was our guilt. The separation from the Father he experienced on the cross was our separation. It was not his to bear, and yet he bore it. The world filled with violence and injustice and envy and strife did not deserve his compassion, and yet he gave it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, the joy of our salvation. For God does not overlook iniquity. He does not ignore wrongdoing. Neither is he negligent in judging the thoughts of men. He is not fooled. He is not mocked. Nothing escapes his gaze. So on the cross, we see the judgment of God poured out fully, not on those who deserved it, but on the one and the only one who did not. Because on the cross, we don't simply see God's wrath against sin and lawlessness, but we see his all-surpassing love for his dearly beloved. And in that, in that is the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel to change lives. And it continues to change lives to this day. It's the power of God for salvation. It is the love of God for restoring relationship with his children. And perhaps this morning, you are in need of a restored relationship with God. And this morning, we're gonna take communion together. And communion is our way of demonstrating that. See, you don't have to be you know, a member of KCC to participate. This is, this is a memorial meal, a physical representation of a spiritual reality. So as you're at home right now, tuning in or traveling abroad, I'd encourage you to, to grab some bread, grab some wine or grab some juice uh, to be able to partake with us this morning. Because Jesus shed his blood. He gave his body to restore us to himself. So as we come to the table this morning, I ask that you would prepare your hearts before God, forgiving and then seeking forgiveness as those who have been forgiven by God so that we could become uh, those who have been made righteous, those who are willing to forgive, those who can become as Christ and demonstrate his love to the world. So let's come before God with hearts that are made right before him, with hearts that are humbled before him and ready to share his forgiveness with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning that we can celebrate the resurrection and that uh, we, we can fully do it by participating in communion together and remembering that you went willingly to the cross to shed your blood, to give your body so that we could be restored to you. We praise you, Lord. We, we ask your forgiveness of sins. Lord, may you give us hearts to forgive others. God, may we do as you did, being willing to reconcile us to yourself while we were yet enemies. God, give us that kind of heart for those who've wronged us, and may we seek forgiveness for the things that we have done to wrong others and to wrong you. Lord, make our hearts pure before you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood, which has been shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you again that we can share in the resurrection, that Jesus was the first of the resurrection, that he can say, because I live, you also will live, and that he's going to prepare a place for us. So Lord, may we live here and now for Christ and in Christ, doing the things that he has commanded us to do. Lord, give us a boldness, give us a purity, strengthen us, restore us and renew us, God, so that we can be those who can restore others to you through sharing the good news of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.